You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. This is Real Vision Daily Briefing Live Without a Net. Welcome, Ed. Yes, thanks, Ash. It is good uh, to talk to you. And my understanding is, actually, this is the last time you and I were going to be talking in the Real Vision Daily Briefing for the year. Yeah, hard to believe. Yeah, so uh, I understand that uh, we are going on a hiatus between... Uh, Christmas Eve and New Year's Day, uh, except under the proviso that markets uh, stay with us. Because, you know, we know how it is uh, when markets move and we're not doing the daily briefing, people wonder where, where the heck are we? we you and I, we will, uh, you know, come from under our tree, our Christmas tree, if necessary, and, uh, and, and do this all again if markets move in a major way. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're going to be here. We're being mindful of the, uh, I think it was December 2018, Christmas Eve massacre in markets. We're going to be here uh, in case anything bad happens. Uh, we'll jump in from wherever it takes. Exactly. So tell me, uh, Ash, so what's, what's on your mind uh, today as we uh, close out the year? Well, you know, we were talking a little bit about Tesla, uh, which has obviously been a story that's gotten uh, a lot of buzz, uh, not just uh, on inside in the wonky financial press, but more broadly, people uh, are talking about this stock. And there was a chart that I saw that really I thought was quite striking. Uh, this is the Tesla chart that we were talking about earlier. I know we're live switching. I think you can see this on your screen. Basically, what you see here on the left uh, is the $615 billion market capitalization of Tesla uh, for, that shows uh, the revenue revenue at the bottom, the revenue number is $0.3 trillion. That's about $30 billion when you do the dimensional analysis. And on the right, you have the seven largest auto companies uh, next to it, all of which have a total market capitalization of $587 billion. Now, this is a really striking chart when you look at this effectively. Tesla now worth more than all of the other auto companies combined. Just to, just to pick out a name at random, if you look at General Motors, uh, GM right now uh, in 2019 did $137 billion in revenue on the net income line. They did about $6.5 billion in 2019. These are order of magnitude differences, order of magnitude or orders of magnitude differences in price to earnings ratio. This is a big shift. This is the most risk on chart that I can think of, uh, a highly simplified, highly stylized example that shows you just where markets are at today. Yeah, I think this is a good jumping off point before we get into anything pandemic related or employment related, because I have a whole litany of things to talk about related to this. Uh, the first and foremost is, is I, I actually tweeted out this uh, chart because it comes from an Axios uh, article. Uh, and I think the Axios article was titled something like the divide between Tesla sky high value and reality mirrors the broader economy. And they're talking about the K-shaped recovery. And so when I tweeted this, I had a response from Aaron Task, um, and he was telling me that uh, actually, you know, Elon Musk is trying to revolutionize the entire grid, not just the auto industry. So he looked at this as not an apples to apples comparison, misleading. And, you know, I, I responded to him on, on Twitter, not in a disbelieving way, but saying, a positive example of this actually is a company that outgrew its its industry. That's the online bookstore industry, and that's Amazon. Yeah. Because uh, you know, r even though right now you can consider Tesla an auto and an auto supply chain company, uh, they're in the auto supply chain and autos, and you could you know get all the auto supply chain companies in there as well if you wanted to. But the 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 reality is is that task is saying it's bigger. And Amazon also became bigger. And so I've been thinking about this Amazon thing for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, since 2018, I've been saying that, you know, Tesla is basically an option, a lottery ticket, uh, th in the same way that Amazon was circa, 
1999. And that's how I'm thinking about Tesla first and foremost. We can go on and talk about that in a little bit, but that's sort of the main hub of what uh, I want to talk about. Yeah, you know, some great points. I was actually reading your analysis from 2018. Uh, interesting points you made. Aaron Task, a very smart guy. And look, he could he could be absolutely right about this. You and I could be uh, sitting down uh, in December of 2040 when we have a lot more gray hair than we even do now, uh, having this conversation and talking about how Tesla uh, basically um, could have, you know, massively it's brought into the future a whole series of different industries, battery technology, motor technology, the infrastructure uh, around automotive recharging stations. There are all of these things that Tesla could absolutely revolutionize. There's no question about it. But the reality here is you're talking about risk when you see that gap between price and earnings. And look, when we talk about Amazon, that could be precisely the right example. Look, uh, Elon Musk could end up being a combination of, of Thomas Edison uh, and Steve Jobs in building this company. And there are a lot of very smart people, Aaron Task included, and others who think that that's a, a possibility. But the reality is, when you just look at Amazon, you're talking about the potential for significant survivorship bias. You're picking the one case uh, where it did, in fact, work. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of other cases uh, where it didn't. And uh, so that's something to bear in mind. It's about risk. It's about uh, it's about the revenue and earnings getting ahead of the price. It could catch up. It could more than catch up. There was a period there uh, in uh, in the early uh, 2000s where I think uh, Amazon was down for like three and a half years. You lost money on that stock if you'd bought at the peak. So again, over long time horizons, lots of things that can happen. Yeah, uh, 100%. And so, you know, I have a whole, as I was saying, litany of stuff to talk about that, uh, backs into that. Let me just preface it with this statement that I this is the first time right now that I really felt that we are definitely I felt really the most like we're in sort of a 1999 phase. And I was looking back through history uh, into previous uh, manias uh, that are in the recent past. And the, the two that are in the recent past are you know, the late 90s and also the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and I'm a student of history. And uh, interestingly, let me show you, I have this book uh, called Ling. It's about the founder of Ling Timco Vought, which was one of the companies of the late 60s conglomerate phase uh, that people were really into. Uh, and I'll get into uh, that later on when I talk about that particular stock market event. But when we go back to the 90s, and the, the reason I feel like the 90s is going back and thinking about Tesla and Amazon, it, it bears in mind thinking about the trajectory that Amazon went through. And I was there, and I remember you were there, you remember yeah. as well. So there was a guy who was a convertible bond analyst at Lehman Brothers called Ravi Surya. He wrote this report uh, saying that Amazon was going to run out of money. Uh, and he was worried about their ability to generate cash uh, before their convertible bonds were due. They had issued these convertible bonds. And uh, on the back of that, there were jitters about Amazon. Amazon actually sold in February of 2000 uh, these convertible bonds, $672 million at 6.9% interest rate. And that was right when people were having jitters about uh, the bubble and so forth. Uh, and they got, you know, the, the terms that they got were flexible conversion terms. 6.9 was a really high rate for a convert at that particular time. I think they got that like 2% in their previous con uh, convert. And literally, you know, two months later, the door slammed shut on mm -hmm. uh, the market. And interestingly, Brad Stone, who wrote the 2013 opus about Amazon called The Everything Store, he said that, if Amazon had not raised that money for that convertible at that time, they would have gone bankrupt. Mm. They almost certainly would have faced insolvency uh, had they not. So that one convertible was very important. And here is Ravi Surya in the summer after that that convertible was uh, um, done, saying that Amazon could still go bankrupt. And I saw an article in Fortune magazine from June of 2001 just preparing for this uh, daily briefing, saying that uh, Amazon had lost some 90% of its value by June of 2001 compared to when Surya first started saying that Amazon could go bankrupt. So 90% down, and we also know that had they not done that convert, 
Amazon would have gone bust. So even the great Amazon, which rose from the ashes like a phoenix, uh, went through its, its, its hard times and potentially could have gone bust uh, as well. That's just a fascinating story, Ed. That's great. I, I love hearing these stories because, as we always say, uh, history doesn't repeat itself. It does often rhyme. And you can start to hear some of the rhyme scheme uh, sounding really similar. I mean, a couple of points to what you just said that I think are, are really incredibly relevant here. The first is, uh, if you had sold Amazon stock in 2001 or 2002 or 2003, you lost money if you bought at or near the peak. Second, such a fascinating story. I know you and I both have fixed income backgrounds, but you think about that, the ability to raise money uh, just before, as you say, the door slams shut. And it almost is like this butterfly effect, right? If they hadn't been able to do the issuance, if there was one pension fund that wasn't willing to take the debt and the bank that was, uh, that was doing the, uh, the fundraising couldn't do it. I mean, there's just so many things that could have happened that could have gone wrong uh, that didn't. And now when we look back on it, we impose this sense of retrospective inevitability. This is the sort of the flip side of uh, survivorship bias. We know now that Amazon is a company that's revolutionized the world. You could imagine the same thing happening uh, with Tesla. And it could be on the bubble. It could be in either direction, right? The inability to, to do that key funding round at exactly the moment where you need the cash, exactly the moment where you're going to get locked out of markets, uh, the public uh, debt markets, if you're not able to do it. And then on the flip side, if you do it, you look back and you and you go, oh, wow, that was a great deal. And But of course, the management of the company were brilliant, and they were going to they were going to find a way to make it happen. Only works when it does. Exactly, and you know I have two sets of, uh, or actually you could even say three sets of companies to uh, make a comparison to. Uh, first and foremost, uh, let's talk about companies that did go bust. Mm -hmm. uh, Webvan. Uh, we're talking about Cosmos, another company. This That's is Cosmos. one that you know was supposed to. You wanted to buy something uh, really quick. They could deliver to you, you know, zip, zip, zip like that to your door. Pets I, I love. Those are three separate companies that were big. They were big flameouts. They went bust. Uh, yeah, yeah. They could have been the next Amazon. Interestingly, in every single one of those cases, uh, we have companies today that do the exact same thing and are, very, are flourishing doing it. Webvan, we have Fresh Direct. We have Blue Apron. You have even Instacart, which doesn't own the groceries, but actually just goes and picks up the groceries for you. Amazon Direct. Amazon itself is doing uh, what uh, Webvan did. Amazon yeah. is also doing what Cosmo did uh, and delivering same day uh, right to you through uh, you know their, uh, their Amazon Prime service. And then finally, Pets.com, you know, yeah. uh, in this pandemic, we have everyone getting a pet. I actually got a dog during the pandemic. I uh, go to Chewy.com. Chewy.com is doing gangbusters during this particular uh, phase. So there, right, right there, we have three different companies that, whose business model was actually proven, but right. they, they didn't have the wherewithal, they didn't have the capital structure to be able to make it through that particular period. So when I think of uh, Tesla today, uh, you know, in 2018, I actually thought of Tesla more in the Amazon mode of they're doing a convert. Because if you remember, Tesla had these converts that were potentially going to go, uh, that, that were going to con convert, and they, they needed the money. But they got through that period, and now they're on the other side of that period. They've gone up a ridiculous amount since that time. And so as a result, uh, I think that they're more in the survivor game. And the question is, is how do they survive after the fact? This is the second uh, number of companies that I would compare Amazon to. I would say, you know, look at AOL, uh, look at Yahoo, and, and uh, look at uh, companies like that. Because you could be Yahoo, you could be AOL, or you could be Amazon. And survive. All three of those companies survived, but one survived in a great way. The other two did not survive in a great way. Well, you know, that's so right, Ed. And it's such a fascinating analysis and way to think about it. You know, for many years, pets.com was used as a joke about everything that had gone wrong uh, with the, the valuations in the 90s and with the business models in the 1990s. And now, as you say, uh, everything old is new again. We're revisiting it. Chewy, uh, a big website. The joke was that, you know, there was never a business model to be made uh, delivering 40-pound bags of cat litter uh, when you could just go into the corner bodega or your local supermarket and buy one. But again, that reverses out. I, I remember back in those days, Cosmo, and there was another one called Urban Fetch. Uh, right. 
Remember Urban Fetch? Yes. <laughs> I was working at Credit Suisse at the time. I was in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, you know, we used to order uh, we used to order like Hershey's bars, uh, Snickers bars, just to see if they would deliver it. You know, a sixty nine cent item, and they would. And you know, we kind of had a sense that maybe this was a little bit uh, that the business model there wouldn't quite work because they had no minimums. You could literally order a, a Twix bar, and they'd come and drop it off to you within sixty minutes. It was just completely absurd, fun, but completely absurd. But the reality is that business model has matured. As the supply chains have matured, as the systems that have, are between them have matured, as the delivery models have matured, so you could say, in a way, uh, that, and I'm sure if you go to a, to a bar in, in Menlo Park or Palo Alto, the guys who founded those companies are sitting around saying, "Damn it, we were right. We had the right model. We were just too early." Uh, the reality is that you can. You, it's thinking about things on multiple time horizons, talking about survivorship bias, talking about the peers in the company, why one uh, company survives and another fails, trying to figure all of these things out. History is a great guide to this. Uh, and again. Coming back to that point, just to shift gears here a little bit, talking about where the markets are right now. I mean, if you want to talk about where this market is, if you want to talk about risk on, look at the Russell 2000 chart right now. So you look at the Russell 2000 chart over two years, it's a moonshot. I'm not a technical analyst, but it's pretty clear that the Russell 2000 right now is, uh, is at about 2000. The 200-day moving average, a very long-term moving average, is at 1526. So we're 25% we're or thereabouts above the 200-day moving average. By every reasonable technical indicator, this is way overbought. Yeah, definitely way overbought. And I would say that uh, you know we're getting to the point now where it's not just uh, the Teslas of the world, but it's across the board that we're we're seeing companies that are getting to levels, not necessarily an absolute level, but on a relative basis that is uh, is worrying. Uh, you know, I think one thing to remember is a lot of people are thinking about Cosmo and Pets.com and Webvan. They forget about AOL and Yahoo. And even if they do remember AOL and Yahoo, they don't remember, you know, that Amazon went down 90 percent. Qualcomm, which is a great company right now, they went up 2,600 percent in the year 1999. And then you had other companies like Cisco, Juniper doing incredibly well. You had the frauds like WorldCom that went out of business. But, you know, there was a there was a whole uh, ecosystem that was out there in 1999 that people were forgetting about. And as you say, it's about the survivorship bias. Yeah. One thing that I should I, I'd like to point out too that uh, is interesting that just gives you a sense of where we are today versus where we were then. If you look at uh, what I would call today's Nifty Fifty or part mm -hmm. of today's Nifty Fifty, uh, none of the none of those companies except for Amazon actually in its current guise existed in the internet bubble. Okay, so Facebook didn't exist as a company at all. Amazon uh, was the 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 only darling that went up and down during that that period. Apple, although it did go up and down, it wasn't the same company it is today. It didn't have the iPhone. It's a completely different organization, in my view. Didn't have Netflix. services revenue. Right. Netflix. No cloud. It went public, and uh, it wasn't public at that time. It was formed in 1997. And then finally, Google was formed in 1998. It also wasn't public. Yeah. So it's a completely different world. We just have to remember that uh, this is the case today. Yeah, so true. And Netflix, uh, not only was it a private company, but Netflix wasn't a streaming company. They'd send you DVDs and little envelopes in the mail, uh, which seemed incredibly innovative at the time. So, you know, th that makes me think a little bit about the Nifty 50 and the, and the last bubble. Because, you know, when you and I were talking, uh, when we were in the, in the previous bubble, uh, you, there were people from the, the bubble before that who were warning us, you know, this is overbought. Uh, it can't go on. You have no idea what you're doing. Uh, this is terrible. These valuations, they cannot uh, continue. Interestingly, uh, you know, I, I was probably, you know, three, four, five years old at the time when this was all going on. You can go back and look at uh, the late 60s or early 70s. Uh, we had the conglomerates, Ling Tim Kovat. That's the, uh, you know, this is the book of the, the founder, Ling, who uh, I, re I read about ITT Corporation, Litton Industries, uh, Teledyne, Textron. The trick back then was to look for acquisition targets with solid earnings. Uh, that had lower price earnings ratios, put them up into your uh, your conglomerate, and then uh, you know 
uh, milk that thing. 1968, things peaked out. There was a nasty bear market in 1968 to 1970. The S&P fell 36%. And then when it was all over, people said, okay, we've been chastened. Now we're going to go after the blue chips, what I would call the FANG stocks. Mm -hmm. Back then, they were the nifty 50. These yep. were stocks like Polaroid, Xerox, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, IBM, JCPenney. Some of them you remember because they, they're in the news today. Yeah. The average price earnings ratio of the Nifty 50 was 42 times, whereas the average P.E. ratio everywhere else was 19 times. Is that not what's going on with the stay-at-home stocks? It's exactly the same sort of thing. People have said, OK, we're shifting. This is where we want to be. Uh, and then, of course, the bottom fell out. Uh, all of the main uh, stock indices in uh, the future G7 went down between September and December of 74. They bottomed having lost at least 34% in value, 43% in real terms. And, and here's the kicker. You know that the, uh, the secular bull market started by 1982. West Germany didn't recover in real terms to the level after that bust in, in, until 1985. Mm -hmm. uh, the UK didn't recover until 1987, and the US didn't recover from its 1974 crash until the year 1993. Extraordinary. So I think that, you know, I don't want to, you know, make a, a, a huge case that uh, we're going to see the same thing again, but history does rhyme. And I think that we should consider the concept that uh, things are, are, are getting overbought. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of the great F. Scott Fitzgerald quote uh, from the Crap Gup, his sort of journal of his descent into madness. And the quote is, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And that in many ways is what these markets seem to be asking investors to do. We know the cautionary tales and we know the success stories. We know the excesses in terms of valuation and we know where the value lies. We know uh, the business models that don't make sense and at the same time we see this great American innovation engine creating phenomenal companies uh, like Amazon and understanding and Netflix and Apple uh, and all of the fang stocks, Google. And we try and sort through where we are in the cycle. We try and understand where uh, the valuations are. Uh, in trying to figure this out, we bring it back full circle to Tesla. It's a really complicated question. Yeah, and it, it, it is, especially now that we, we're administering this vaccine. 2.6 million people have already gotten the vaccine. We can see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the that's a good segue into the economy because, yeah. uh, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, if you look at commodity prices like copper, as an example, uh, copper is way up over uh, the last uh, several months. During the reopening, it really went up a lot. On the back of that, company, countries that uh, have real, you know, access to copper, like Peru, are very much in vogue. Uh, a lot of people haven't been watching this because they're looking at equities. But interestingly, you know, the search for yield, the risk on trade is so large that Peru was actually, they issued $4 billion of debt at the end of November, including a century bond. This is a, uh, you know, an, an emerging market. And this 100-year bond, which expires in 2121, had a yield to maturity of 3.23%. So that's Peru. So you're getting Peru for 100 years at 3.23%. That gives you a sense of the fact that it's not just in equities, it's also in bonds. That's where we're seeing uh, this, this reflation trade. And then the question now becomes for you, Ash, uh, what are the numbers you're looking at in the real economy and in the, in the pandemic? Uh, right now? 
Well, you know, exactly right. And those are the key questions. I, I saw an interview with Dr. Fauci earlier in the day. Uh, so, uh, you know, Dr. Fauci is saying about a million doses have been uh, dispensed here in the United States alone. Uh, and we need 75 to 80 percent saturation with this vaccine before you start to get something that looks like a herd immunity that starts to provide an umbrella immunity effect uh, for the country. Uh, you know, one, we've got about uh, a million dispensed here in the U.S., as I said, uh, and that gives you, give or take, uh, 75 to 80 percent. It brings you about uh, a quarter of a billion doses, 250 million doses that would have to be dispensed. We're not there yet. Um, Dr. Fauci says that broadening the, uh, in terms of the logistics of how this is going to go out, uh, that broadening the base uh, of the inoculation is probably going to happen sometime in April if all goes to plan, meaning if you're not a high-risk person, you're not a police officer, you're not a healthcare worker, uh, you can just go down to your doctor and say, hey, I want the vaccine. He's saying that looks like April. Probably by the end of summer, in his estimation, when we start to be able to go out and do things again. So maybe, uh, maybe by the time we get to Labor Day weekend, we can we can go out and uh, have you come up to New York City, and we can bring the whole team out for for cocktails at a bar here in New York. Um, but that's a long way away. And so you talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. I guess the question that I think about is just how long that tunnel is. Uh, right, if we bring yeah. up and that's really a key question. If we bring up the, the COVID hospitalization chart, uh, what you can see here is, once again, every day making new highs. I think we're at 117,000 uh, right now, current hospitalizations around COVID. Uh, and that, of course, uh, is about 7,000 above your ceiling number of 110,000, I think the number was that you said a couple of weeks ago for, that you were looking at for the key number. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I was thinking that, you know, just to understand where the trajectory was, by mid-December, we were going to get to 110,000. Uh, if we got above that, then that would be a sign that you know more people were being hospitalized, and th therefore we're going to see an accelerated pace of uh, economic rollbacks compared to what I was uh, thinking. And yeah, we we pretty much bang on hit the uh, the levels that I was looking at, um, and so I do think that we're going to continue to see. Uh, rollbacks uh, in the U.S. and also in Europe. Uh, I interestingly, I'm less concerned about the U.S. in terms of the near-term rollbacks. If you look at the numbers, both in terms of uh, the case counts and the death counts, they're going up at a, at a, a lower rate, which suggests that we're starting to peak. Uh, that is, uh, before we get this this next wave uh, as a result of uh, Christmas and New Year's. So that's good for now. But Europe, where we look at what's going on in the UK and, and Germany in terms of their lockdowns, you know, uh, tier four lockdown almost all across Germany, they're saying as a boxing day. And then in Germany, uh, we've got uh, a, a total lockdown as well because light didn't work. They had, you know, almost 800 people who died in the last day, which is, you know, if you gross that up, that's levels that are similar to the United States. And Germany was supposed to be a, a, a positive actor in the first the first time. Yeah. Uh, so that's telling you that there are major economies in Western Europe and also in the United States, if you think about California, that are getting crushed. Uh, and so to me, that says when you talk about light at the end of the tunnel, uh, we're, we're, we definitely need some serious uh, offsets from government uh, to deal with that because, yeah, we're going to have at least a month or two more of, of pain of that, of that sort, of that, that gross amount. Yeah, absolutely. All about the second derivative. And that's why so your analysis is so interesting on this and why uh, I always find it so compelling. And my screen is burning up with questions coming to us live from the audience. I'm afraid we're not going to be able to get through them all. Uh, but we have pages and pages of questions. And I'd like to just jump in and get started. Um, this one's to both of us. Uh, uh, any comments, but I think really to you, any comments about David Rosenberg's recent statement that nothing prevents the creation of more BTC beyond 21 million? Oh, that may be... Oh, yeah, I, think that is I, I, th I thought that was going to be a macro question when I saw David's <laughs> name. We're just burning up the charts. I, I, I think it's a, an, an interesting idea. I don't, I don't really see it as being terribly feasible, to be honest with you. Uh, 21, uh, 21, 21 million is in the in the cultural DNA uh, of Bitcoin. I, I guess you could say uh, that um, that 
it's not really Bitcoin if there are more than 21 million coins. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe there's another hard fork. Um, but I, I have a very hard time believing that the core of the community is going to tolerate uh, an inflation rate beyond what's been stated uh, in the original white paper. So, um, all right, here's one that really is uh, to both of us. Uh, any fears about the Trump bill veto and evictions, Ed? Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, where the rubber hits the road in terms of, you know, the how long is that uh, tunnel before we get to the other side is in the, these kinds of things. So I was looking at the politics uh, today. So we've got the stimulus bill. Uh, the stimulus bill has been passed. It's almost a trillion dollars. But there's a lot of pork in that. Uh, and uh, Trump is not happy about it. And he's also not happy about 600 bucks instead of $2,000. Uh, going to families or, or going to individuals, 4,000 for, for families, he says. So he might actually veto that. He has actually vetoed the defense bill right. um, because of Section 230 of the Communications Act and the Confederate generals uh, part of it. And so I think there is a, there's, th there is some danger uh, from a political perspective going forward. And of course, obviously, just thinking about Europe, there's also the danger in terms of Brexit uh, and this new virus, uh, which is creating some sort of difficulties with regard to, uh, you know, goods going to and from the UK. Yeah, that's exactly right. This virus mutation is something that we really don't have our heads around. We collectively, from a scientific perspective, you know, just to pick up and add some color on that point, because I think it's a, it's really strange times here, uh, politically speaking. Section two thirty, by the way, of the Comms Act is the uh, is uh, Trump is upset about the uh, inability or insufficiency of stripping away protections from the big uh, from the big tech giants uh, around uh, around uh, communications freedom and some of those issues. It's more of the same on a similar fight. Uh, but you know, one of the things that I find. Really Really so interesting about this, and I was looking at this right before we got on the air, uh, is that uh, you know we are currently here uh, in December twenty third, twenty twenty, at a point where um, where Congress uh, Congresswoman AOC uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, is tweeting out very favorable things to Donald Trump. She's very pleased. She's very glad that he wants to expand uh, that number, saying that uh, she's happy to work with him. That uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, is happy to work with him. These are strange political bedfellows here on this. Uh, and at the same time, a couple of days ago, we have uh, Pat Robert. Robertson, uh, the uh, very well-known televangelist here in the United States, very conservative, longtime supporter of the president, uh, saying that President T uh, Trump is uh, is out of touch with reality. Effectively, he is uh, erratic, and that he's living in an alternate reality. Very, very strange political times. The the way I would characterize it, the danger, uh, other than just from an economic perspective, but from a political perspective, if you're a Republican, is a split potentially in the party. Yeah. And you know this is especially true, obviously, for the January fifth uh, senatorial election in um, in Georgia. But you know, uh, basically, what Trump is is saying is is that you guys aren't uh, down for the people. Uh, I'm down for the people now. You know that I don't have to worry about. Uh, uh, electoral politics. I'm going to, you know, speak my mind, and you know, at the end, I'm going to make the vetoes. When he's out of office, uh, that's going to mean that a large swath of people are going to be very upset with where Mitch McConnell and and the like are headed. And so, you know, for the Republicans, they have to understand what that means for them, and and no one knows what that means for them. Yeah, that's very well said, and that gets to the point, which is that what we're seeing is uh, left-leaning populism and right-leaning populism landing on the same basic policy positions, sort of against center-left and center-right uh, traditional establishment positions. That's a very unusual place for American politics to be. Interestingly, I saw Michelle Malkin, who is a, a right-wing pundit, she was a tweeting, uh, a retweeting uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who uh, was a, who still is a, a representative in Congress uh, for Hawaii. She's a Democrat who ran for president. Uh, she didn't vote for this bill. She voted against it, and she was explaining why and uh, the defense bill. And uh, and Michelle Malkin was saying kudos to her. And if you read some of the the comments there, other people were saying you know Tulsi, you know we don't like this and that about her, but you know she's principled, et cetera. I think that you're right. There is uh, this uh, this sort of populism on both sides where there's there's shared interest there, and it's not clear where that's going to go uh, after uh, January the twentieth, twenty twenty. Yeah, that's so. Twenty twenty one. 
Yeah, it's. I think that's. I think that's exactly right. Uh, and it really is a strange thing to see shake out, where you have left and right uh, populists uniting against establishment of both parties. A really interesting and very hard to read, ultimately, political landscape uh, as we think about going forward. You know, and as I look through these questions, uh, I realize how overweight cryptocurrency is in some of these things. Obviously, it's what people are talking about. There's a lot of motion here. Uh, we don't want to get lost in that, but I want to take a, uh, at least one more of these questions. And I should say, uh, as preface before we before we jump in here, um, that we've actually just announced two new podcasts here at Real Vision. Uh, the first is Between Two Chains, uh, kind of an institutional analytic look at the cryptocurrency markets uh, and thoughts around how institutional investors are positioning themselves in the space uh, and a great deal more. Uh, and then Ground Floor Consensus, which is my new podcast where we do uh, in-depth conversations with people uh, who are the biggest names in the space, the most insightful thinkers in the space. Uh, and what we try to do is, and this is something that I'm really passionate about because people in the crypto space increasingly feel like we're talking to each other uh, and everyone else is kind of getting left behind, not really understanding what this increasingly wonky conversation is about. I'm really intent on trying to broaden the base and bring the ideas that are really cutting edge in the crypto space to a much broader audience because I think there are just a lot of smart people out there who really need to join this conversation. Oh boy, this first question coming up to us from Brandon is uh, is not an easy one. It's XRP. Any thoughts on the SEC lawsuit? Uh, this, of course, is uh, in reference to Ripple. Uh, this is an, a really interesting story for people who are in the uh, in the cryptocurrency world. I mean, the short answer is too soon to tell. Uh, this was something that just uh, came out in the last few days. Uh, the lawsuit, I don't even believe, has been filed yet. They've pre-announced it. Uh, obviously, they got word of it. It's an interesting question because if if you're familiar with this space, uh, Ripple XRP uh, is a it's a company that uh, is, is really interested in doing a lot of the back-end uh, uh, plumbing work on Wall Street, transferring money, currencies, that sort of thing, uh, between, uh, between as an interbank intermediary uh, between financial institutions. This is really tricky uh, because the regulatory legal compliance play is so strong in Ripple's message and in their model. Uh, they're basically saying, hey, listen, we understand this space. We understand how regulated institutions work. Uh, if SEC ultimately uh, declares that uh, Ripple is a security that throws a massive wrench into their plans. <coughs> Excuse me. It's going to be very tricky. Also, the word is uh, that SEC is going to be filing suit against uh, Mr. Garlinghouse and Mr. Larson, uh, two senior executives of the company personally, uh, which seems to say that these guys are really playing hardball. And uh, this is something that could be a very intense debate. Yeah. I mean, for me as an outsider to the community, the way that I'm looking at it, to be honest with you, uh, is... Uh, the, the whole thing about securities law. That is, is if a fiat currency issuer like the United States wants to stop any sort of cryptocurrencies from gaining traction, that's the first uh, port of call to say, you know what, this is not a currency. Cryptocurrency, you call it a currency, but we look at it as a taxable transaction. Every transaction you make when the currency goes up, you now owe Uncle Sam or you know uh, the the revenue agency in uh, in in the UK money. Uh, fork it over. Your your 100% profit. Uh, you need to give us 35% uh, of that or 38% of that, whatever it might be. To me, that is the power of uh, of government, and this is a power that they're now showing with Ripple. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We're so early in the regulatory legal compliance cycle of this. I mean, one of the interesting things to me, and I just had this conversation actually with Nick Carter, uh, who's an incredibly bright thinker on all of these issues, that if you look, look, if you look at just regulatory treatment within the United States, only within the United States, there's this really broad divergence uh, of the way Bitcoin, for example, gets treated by different regulatory agencies. IRS treats it like property. Uh, CFTC treats it like a commodity. Uh, and then there's the question of whether or not these, these protocols are a security. This comes up, obviously, very specifically with XRP and SEC, because that's their relevant regulatory agency, if it is, in fact, deemed to be a security. These are really complicated questions, and we're still incredibly early 
in the cycle. Now, people who are great, the most passionate advocates uh, of Bitcoin will say you can never shut Bitcoin down. And that's true. If, as long as there's an internet uh, that is running, you're able to conduct these transactions on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. Uh, so the ability to actually sanction it or to, uh, or to stop it is very limited. Governments all across the world have this challenge. But the reality is, institutions don't play in spaces where there are significant regulatory risks. And if the regulators really wanted to play hardball over Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, they could absolutely decimate that price. Uh, and if the price gets whacked, uh, and if there is significant regulatory barriers that institutions don't want to play in that space, you could see uh, Bitcoin not being eliminated. Again, it can never really be blocked, but you could see it truly decimated. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we have very uh, sort of wise, thoughtful uh, people here in the United States on the institutional side and the regulatory uh, infrastructure of this country. And I think we're going to figure out a way uh, to, to move forward because there's just so much promise in this technology uh, as a store of value, as a medium of exchange uh, for smart contracts, which is Ethereum, EOS, some of the other newer protocols. I really think that we're at the beginning uh, of a renaissance in this technology. I think we're, we're in like the third inning maybe uh, at latest. But there is risk, uh, certainly. And also, I believe, and Raul has spoken to this point very eloquently, I think that what we are going to see uh, is an integration with the, the broader macroeconomic infrastructure that we have in this country uh, and around the world. We're going to see an integration uh, more broadly with financial institutions. And we're going to see it come under the, under the, under the blanket of the regulatory compliance infrastructure that we have now in place. It's hard for me to see it uh, happening any other way. I know there are people uh, who are very involved in the libertarian side, people who are, uh, who are really passionate about the, the freedom that this technology provides. I think ultimately what we're going to see is greater, uh, greater regulation and it being brought more broadly into the fold. And that can only be positive. I mean, as I was uh, saying to you earlier, I think it was yesterday, uh, PayPal was sending me a message saying that, you know, we're going to allow you to uh, to go between fiat and uh, and Bitcoin for free until the end of the year. They're obviously making a play to say, look, you know, we're a trusted financial institution. We're part of the financial architecture. Uh, uh, you, you're one of our customers. We want to get into this space. Get into the space with us. Uh, because, you know, you trust us, you have an existing relationship with us, that's good. So I think that that's a good play. The real question is, for me, is, you know, the dynamics of uh, the, the mania in other parts of the world moving into Bitcoin in a way that causes Bitcoin to attract attention uh, that regulators want to put a kibosh on. Uh, let me g tell you how I'm thinking about this. Bitcoin, 50,000. Bitcoin, 100,000. Those are levels that guaranteed the SEC will not like. And when I say not like, what I mean is, is that they're thinking of it in terms of the way that they're thinking of uh, XRP right now, ways that will cause them to get into the space in a way that's negative for the space and for regulation. So in some ways, uh, you know, you almost don't want it to go up in a parabolic way. Yeah, you know, and in some senses, uh, the, the Ripple story is the one that's getting the most buzz. Uh, but um, FinCEN actually uh, weighed in a few days ago on self-hosted wallets. This really speaks directly to the ability of people to autonomously control their own transactions uh, in the Bitcoin space. Uh, and this is something that I think they gave 15 days of guidance on. Uh, Coinbase uh, has has pushed back and said, hey, guys, this is like we need more than two weeks. The holidays are coming up. We need a full 30-day period. This is a really significant uh, structural question about the way that this industry is going to function. My guess is self-hosted wallets continue. Uh, I suspect that to be true. But again, you, you never know in the short term from a regulatory perspective where things are going to go. And to your point about PayPal, PayPal has 305 million users in 202 different markets. So it, you know, we often forget. Uh, my mother's husband was just asking me. He said, "Well, you know, Bitcoin's really interesting. How, how the hell do I buy this?" Right? This is something that there are still a lot of people who are interested in the space, uh, who want to purchase these assets, who don't really know how to do it. Uh, and PayPal, precisely as you point out, Ed, uh, provides an on ramp to that ecosystem. 
So you, I'm sure you have tons of other questions for us. Uh, and, you know, by the way, in terms of uh, David Rosenberg, if I had an answer to what he, where he's going, I think he's talking about derivatives, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. Think of it in terms of the mortgage-backed securities market, that there wasn't enough supply to deal with what people wanted, and so they created synthetic supply. I was in the uh, the GKO market in the late 90s. That's the, uh, the domestic uh, Russian bond market. And, you know, because uh, it wasn't a convertible currency, there were limitations in terms of flows. People created synthetic GKOs. Uh, and those, of course, to a degree blew up uh, when you had the default. But you can see that people will find a way to transact. Uh, they will find a way to increase uh, the, the supply, if it's, even if it's a synthetic way. That's what financial innovation is all about. Yeah, we should use the uh, maybe the, the air quotes around uh, innovation in that context. <laughs> awesome, these things uh, blow up. I mean, when I hear the words uh, synthetic uh, GKOs, I, I think about uh, I think about the bonfire of the vanities, right? That this is really, this was some this was some wacky stuff. Uh, I'm going to try and just skim through these questions here to try and uh, avoid picking uh, one more crypto question. Although we love it, we like to talk about macro uh, on Real Vision Classic and talk more about crypto on Real Vision Crypto. By the way, if you're not a Real Vision Crypto subscriber, uh, you can sign up for free uh, right now. Uh, get all of the content, not a trial, uh, full content for free right now available uh, on the Real Vision Crypto website. Uh, RealVision.com will get you there. Uh, so, Ed, let, let me just let me just take a, a, an amalgamation of a few questions because it's really the question that I most want to ask you. People have hit on this in different ways, but really, as we come into 2021, Ed, what's your big picture outlook? What's the thesis, and what are you going to be watching to see if that thesis comes to fold? Yeah, I think uh, you probably put it the best in terms of the light at the end of the tunnel. The the If you had to pick one question to ask, the question is, is how long is that tunnel? Yeah. And then uh, if you wanted to uh, drill down in terms of that question, the, answer, the, que the, the, the next question is, what happens to the companies uh, uh, in, in America and in the world during that period of time? Uh, in various sectors of the economy, in terms of their balance sheets, uh, you know, ones that are less leveraged and more leveraged, and then what happens to consumers during that period of time. I think that uh, you showed me a chart earlier that uh, we have a, we might be able to even put up on the screen, you know, yeah. that's the percent job losses in post-World War II recessions. I think that that's really telling just from a you know, just from the the person perspective, you know, from the household perspective, what you see in that chart is, you know, uh, going across the x-axis is is time from the beginning of the recession, uh, from the beginning of the job losses. And then, you know, on the y-axis, uh, if I'm getting this wrong, but you know it could be x and y the opposite direction, is the percent loss of of jobs. And so the, uh, you know, First thing to note is is every single recession is very similar except for the 2007 recession and the 2020 recession. Those are orders of magnitude different. The 2007 recession was different in terms of the, it, its depth and length. You know, it, it, it had the same trajectory as all the other recessions, uh, but it was just longer and deeper in terms of the employment factor. This recession is a completely different animal again. It's it's orders of magnitude worse in terms of its uh, depth. But even today, after the so-called V-shaped recovery, you see that we're not even close to any of the other places. The closest we can get is the trough of the 2007 employment recession. And Ash, we were looking at this chart right before we came on, and I was telling you, if you look at the line of this chart, uh, right around, I would say, the 9.5% mark, uh, which is, by the way, much, much lower down than the minus 6.2% mark from the, the trough of the 2007 employment recession, the line starts to kink. You know, it's straight down, then it comes straight up, somewhat V-like. And then right around 9.5%, it starts to roll over. The slope of the line changes. So to me, that's the biggest question. This is the, the biggest question, not just in terms of the tunnel, but after the tunnel and also in terms of politics. 
if this if this if this line rolls over, if that slope continues to move in a way that it doesn't cross over the 2007 employment recession line, you're going to have hell to pay economically and politically. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly right, that the best that we can hope for right now is a, is approaching the trough of what those of us who were covering uh, in, in 2008 uh, remember to be a horrific, horrific recession. Uh, so that is a, a really uh, powerful uh, point, and it's a powerful chart, because sometimes we get lost a little bit in the day-to-day, -day, the second derivatives uh, of, uh, of unemployment claims, of initial claims, of continuing claims, and we lose track of just how far below par we really are. And looking at all of those other uh, years uh, uh, on the top, uh, 1948, you know, all of these charts going back to 1948, it's pretty striking to see uh, just how low we are. In fact, Ed, it would be great at some point in the new year, uh, it would be great to do a Real Vision Daily Briefing about exactly that topic. I'd love to explore that with you and to hear your thoughts and your analysis uh, on where we are in labor markets. I think that would be uh, that would be something that would be really important for us to think about, because that really is the big picture issue here, uh, macroeconomically and, as you say, uh, politically. This is, the, this is a prime example of the political economy. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just a striking, striking chart. And with that said, we're probably running long here, uh, as we always tend to do on these live shows. I guess uh, I was going to say, it's probably good news if people don't see us until January 4th. <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, uh, it's good that you mentioned uh, January 4th, because m m my understanding is we're going to do some uh, funky new things, and that is, is we're going to have more sort of outside uh, people on uh, starting the new year. I think that we're, you know, I have a, a uh, an analysis that I put together that's going to go up on January the 1st about uh, what we're thinking about in terms of the new year. But then we're also going to have some analyses from other people, Lynn Alden. Uh, we're going to have uh, Mike Green. I already spoke to Darius Dale. That's going to go up. And I want those same people to talk about the here and now, uh, not just their, you know, their long-term look on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So we'll take those same people who are going to be on the Real Vision platform behind the paywall and put them on the Real Vision Daily Briefing as well in a different format. So I think that'll be good, less of me uh, and more of them. Yeah, that's great. And we're going to just continue to do uh, all of those innovations here. And we're excited. I think we have a lot of other things uh, up our sleeves that maybe we're not uh, talking about publicly yet. But I hope that uh, 2021 is going to be the biggest and best year ever for Real Vision. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping it's big and, and great for us and that it's great for the economy and, you know, healthcare outcomes and all of our listeners and, and viewers. Yeah. And if we see you under the tree tomorrow on Real Vision Daily Briefing, we know that's a bad sign. Exactly. And, you know, just to give you a sense of how bad things are uh, in general for 2020, just right now, uh, you know, I keep checking my phone over here because my wife's upstairs. We, we uh, the heat went out, our, our boiler broke. We have no heat. Uh, it may seem like all, everything's nice and cozy here right now, but literally it's like 60 degrees in here. So uh, I'm waiting for the guy to come and, and fix our heat so that we have heat for uh, for Christmas. So that is, in, a, in a, uh, a nutshell, what 2020 has been all about. Oh, man. I really hope on January 4th, when we come back, that uh, you're going to be in a heated room. <laughs> yes, I hope so, too. You know, like a, an yes. Oliver Twist version of uh, Real Vision <laughs> Daily Briefing, where you're, you're over a barrel fire or something. Right. <laughs> uh, Thank you, everyone. Hopefully, uh, markets will remain stable here for the next couple of days, uh, and we'll see you in January. Uh, so if we do not, everyone, please have a happy holiday, and thank you again for joining us. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Ash. Thanks again, everyone. Great talking to you, as always, Ed. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.